0: Uh, Before we we really get started on the sermon, I need to embarrass someone. Is that okay? It's okay with everybody but the one person, right? Mary Petker, could you just maybe give a little wave from where you're sitting? Oh, could you give her a hand? You're going to want to give her a hand. I'll tell you why. Mary is about to move this week to Langley, and that's extra significant. People move, but it's extra significant because Mary has been at Central since 1948. That's 70 years. And uh, so you're aware Central, as a, we have, as a church, we started in 1944. And in 1948, Mary and her family came to Central and have been. she's been here ever since, like involved, immersed. Loved you, prayed for you beyond what you know. Served here every week till this last Friday. Her and Andrew, one of our ushers, we set up a table in the foyer and they have folded your bulletins. And then we planted an Agassiz campus and they started folding Agassiz bulletins. And then we started a promontory campus and they started folding promontory bulletins. Just serving. Just amazing. And I have loved on Friday mornings to spend a little bit of time with Mary and Andrew Uh, It's been just such a, one of the most beautiful pictures of what it means to be the church, be a church family, is just to witness Andrew and Mary at that table, loving their church, loving Jesus, serving it faithfully. And I I just feel, I'm going to devotionalize this for just a couple minutes, okay? This is what pastors do. Two quick things I think we we really want to learn from our sister Mary. One of them is faithfulness to a church family, week in and week out. She told me the other day, she's like, Since 1948, if I was physically able to come to church, I was at church. A lot of us are very physically able to come to church and "Eh, we're not really at church. Thank you for your faithfulness, Mary, to really model for us as one of our senior saints what it looks like to truly be uh, faithful to the bride of Christ. The other thing uh, I hope and, uh, that we learn from, from Mary's life and, and ministry here at Central is her prayer life. Every time we talk almost, she says to me, I pray for you, I pray for the pastors, I pray for our church. She lives in the building right behind here, and so she can see when cars start to come into the parking lot, any time she sees cars gathering in the parking lot, Mary has started to pray. Lord, whatever's happening in the church, I don't know if the youth are meeting, I don't know if there's a ministry meeting going on, but Lord, I pray that you would move. I pray. Like, she, just, she has been praying for you every time cars have gathered in this parking lot. And, and so I, one of the sadnesses for me of, of Mary moving, she's not going to see the... Uh, cars gathering in the parking lot. And so I'm going to put that on you. Can we learn from Mary? Just give into prayer for the saints, for the church, for the family. So can we just give Mary another hand and praise God for our sister? Let's pray for her. Jesus. Uh, This is a sad day and a great day. Uh, Sad for us because we're a family, and uh, Mary is a significant part of that. But it's a happy day because, Lord, she has blessed us so much. Uh, Innumerable numbers of us, Lord, have been touched by her faith, her love. God, she is one of the people that I look in and... uh, and as I've heard some of the struggles she's had in her life, I, I'm, I'm baffled by her hope, by her joy, by her faith in you, and it's such an encouragement. Jesus, we want to just bless her. Lord, we, we want um, to say thank you for the last 70 years you have chosen to let our church be blessed by her. And so our hearts desire, Lord, would you bless her in this... this this, this move and in this next season for her. Be her comfort, be her peace, continue to provide her great hope and great joy in you. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Man, first services are not gonna be the same, all right been a pastor for a few years, and and so I have conversations a lot with with people, and usually when you come to see a pastor, it's not to say, hey, everything's great, just wanted to tell you that. Usually a conversation with a pastor is, I'm going through this hard thing, I'm going through this difficulty. A lot of times the conversation is, I I have got this doubt. So this morning we want to talk about doubt think of a conversation I've had a number of times, but I'm thinking of one specifically. Just a burdened brother in Christ saying, I have pleaded with God for years, asking him to take a particular besetting sin away from me, and he never has, and it torments me. Another man I was talking with a few years ago now, But it's a similar story that happens over and over again. He said, I went through this really, really hard situation. And I don't see how a loving God that I've been so committed to would let this happen to me. And my heart just breaks in those conversations because I can hear the pain. I can hear... The longing for Jesus, and yet just the the torment and the pain and the questioning and the just the doubts that, 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 that exist in all of that. These questions that cause us to doubt the goodness of God, like I've just said, I have this besetting sin, and I pray God take it away. And He never has. Is he good? How could God let me go through such an awful situation or let these people I love so much go through such an awful situation? Is he good? Just looking out at the world today and the problem of evil. If there's a God, is he good? And maybe the questions and the doubts aren't so much about the goodness of God. Maybe they have more to do with the existence of God itself. Right? Like, this perception that, hasn't science disproved God already? Or maybe you, you, you don't think that the Bible is reliable, and so anytime you pick up the Bible to try and grow your relationship with God and understanding of God, underneath every page of the Scriptures that you read is like, can I even trust this? Or because there are a number of world religions and it's There's this doubt that says, isn't it arrogant to claim that Christianity is the truth? Doubt God and doubt God from the Christian perspective. Or maybe it's the the core beliefs of the faith itself. Like, yeah, does prayer really make a difference? We begin to doubt it. We stop to pray. Stop praying. Did the miracles of Jesus actually happen And is he still powerful to move? Does Jesus really call us to take up our cross or to to live lives surrendered to him? We start to doubt these, these commands or is hell real because if it is, isn't it unfair? Or doesn't the hypocrisy of Christians in the church discredit Christianity altogether? Or do I really need the church, I'm just, I, I'm just touching on the tip of the iceberg here. These are live questions that I hear all the time that provide great doubt in the lives of people in our church. Sometimes the doubts aren't so much out there as they are in here. Am I even really saved Or could God ever really forgive me? What do we do when we have doubts? I don't know if you find this refreshing. I do. There are a lot of doubters in the Bible. A lot of doubters in the Bible. I just love how honest the Bible is. One of them is a guy named Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus. And Thomas really has become known as Doubting Thomas. I mean, what a nickname that sticks that you just don't want it to, right? Like, nobody wants a name to stick like, hey, are you Flirty Phyllis? Right? Like, nobody wants to be known as Flirty Phyllis or, you know, Gassy Jack. Aren't you Gassy? You're Gassy Jack, right? Yeah, I guess. Uh, the boys have a grandfather, Emily's dad. They don't call him Grandpa or Grampy. They call him Grumpy. He's Grumpy. His name is Grumpy. And he's Grumpy. So, no. Uh, and so, that's just a name that is stuck. It, but really, it's, it, it's, so it's, it's like, oh, that's not a nickname you'd like to have, Stick. But it's, it's that's actually a generous nickname. Because as we'll read the text this morning, it sounds a lot more actually like disbelieving, Thomas. And so... If you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, if you don't believe, I just just want you to look at a really honest story in John's Gospel, chapter 20, about a guy that we like to call Doubting Thomas. Let's pick it up in verse 24. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 20. It'll also be on the screen. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. I mean, up to that point. (laughs) He wasn't called the twin after this. He was just called Doubting Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. Now that we're picking up from last week, when Easter Sunday evening, Jesus appeared to his disciples, but for some reason we're finding out now, Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, which actually... Um, The way of, of using the language was after eight days, meaning the Sunday after Easter Sunday. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. By way of outline, here's where we're going to go this morning. First, you are not alone in your doubts. Second, I'm going to encourage you to doubt your doubts as much as you doubt God. Third, Jesus graciously meets you in your doubts. And finally, the great Christian hope. First, you are not alone in your doubts. You need to hear that from me, someone who doubts sometimes. Look at the text. The other disciples had seen Jesus and believed, we're told, but it's not quite that simple. Let's back up the train a little bit. In Luke 24, we hear about this account where Jesus appeared to his disciples on Easter Sunday evening, where we now find out Thomas was not. But look at the scenario. It says in Luke twenty-four thirty-seven, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Shalom. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So Jesus appears, and their reaction is, ah, a ghost. It's not really faith, right? Verse 40 goes on. He showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? So amazing on so many levels. So they think Jesus is a ghost when he appears, and then Jesus is like, hey, check it out. Look, this is me. Look, you saw me die, and now I'm showing you the marks. But I'm here, and they're disbelieving, but they're starting to get joyful. They're starting to get excited. They're like, what? Ah." And then Jesus is like, you got something to eat? Like, I've been really busy, and I'm really hungry. Awesome. So Thomas wasn't the only doubter and disbeliever of the group. It's just that the rest of the group had the great honor and privilege of already seeing the resurrected Jesus and working through their doubts. And now they're on the other side of those going, We saw him! Believe! And he's like, I don't know. Look, you are not alone in your doubts. Thomas wasn't. Thomas wasn't the only doubter and disbeliever of the group. The whole bunch had been. The same is true for you. It is so easy for us to often think, I'm the only one. Who doubts? I look, we have the perception, we look around, and faith seems to come so easy to everybody else. But here I am struggling. I'm alone, and I'm the only one. No, you're not. The Bible is full of doubters, and Jesus seems to meet them in the midst of it. What a grace. Jude 22 is an important verse as we talk about doubts. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Did you catch it? didn't say, look down on those who doubt. It doesn't say, tritely tell those who doubt to just have more faith. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. What does that look like? Well, I'm going to illustrate it with a story that's not about doubt at all, but it's about posture. It's about being the church to people who are struggling in some way. It's about a woman named Anne, and she had an opioid addiction and life was very hard for her and her kids. And one morning, she found her way to a church. And when she got there, she's like, what am I doing here? How did I even get here? And there she was with her kids. And she put them in the nursery. And she went into the service. And then she went to pick up her kids after the service from the nursery. And one of the nursery workers did that, <sighs> I hate to tell you this, but uh, you know your kids, uh, they, they bloodied the noses of a couple other children this morning, and we're actually kind of a little bit of a tornado in here, and so I'm really sorry. But And there was Anne struggling in her addiction, addiction and hearing about what happened with her kids in the nursery that morning, and she was just sort of paralyzed in that moment, and she yelled a word. She screamed a word, not really remembering where she was that was a more pointed word than Poo! A more farmer word. <laughs> dozens of parents, more importantly, dozens of children all around. And here she is screaming this expletive outside the nursery of this church. And then it kind of hit her where she was. The blood rushed to her face, so embarrassed, grabbed her children and did that Oof. walk of shame that we all owe. Oh. A woman who was in the nursery that morning and witnessed the experience and three of her own kids were there, thought she should probably write Anne about what had transpired there. What do you think she wrote? I love what she wrote. Dear Anne, it was lovely to meet you and I write to thank you for giving me the most refreshing experience I've ever had in a church. (laughs) And it was refreshing because it reminded me that the presence of Jesus, and ideally the presence of Jesus' people, is the safest place on earth to fall apart. Thank you for showing me Jesus today. You know what happened? The woman they thought they'd never see again at their church arrived early the next Sunday with her kids in tow and became a part of that church and gave her life to Jesus. I tell you this story... Because it's really easy to fool yourself into believing you're the only one dealing with doubts, that you don't belong, that you're an outsider, when nothing could be further from the truth. Your doubts, your doubting, the things you're wrestling with, if you would just share those, you have no idea how refreshing that might be to a fellow pilgrim on the way. You're not alone. You're in good company and you're among friends. Thomas has doubts. We see it in this text. But you know what I love about Thomas? He still shows up. He's still in the room with an entire group of people when every one of them is like, we've seen him. He's risen. Believe it. And he's like, "I, I will not believe that. But he's there. There's something compelled in him. There's something that is drawing him. There's something, these are my friends, these are my people. And they're experiencing something I'm not, but I long for this to be true. And he still shows up. Church, you represent Jesus and should strive to be the safest place on earth for doubters to be. Doubter, you need a church family to walk alongside you to support and encourage you and continue to ground you in the gospel. Thomas needed it. You need it. We all need it. Second, doubt your doubts as much as you doubt God. Here's what I mean. What often happens, this is what I I see so often, what often happens with doubts is that we don't question them. So we have this faith that we hold, and then a doubt comes along, and we question our faith, but we never actually question the doubt that's starting to splinter our faith. We take the doubt for granted, and it's good to question our faith and to seek answers to questions, but, but, we're, but it's actually a very uneven approach, is question the faith, never question the doubt. And that's just wildly inconsistent. So I'm just going to encourage you with something if you are someone who doubts. If a doubt causes you to question your faith, be just as diligent at letting your faith question the doubt. C.S. Lewis, who was an unbeliever and a skeptic, eventually surrendered his life to Christ. And he wrote, believe in God and you will have to face hours when it seems obvious that this material world is the only reality. Disbelieve in him and you must face hours when this material world seems to shout at you that it is not all. No conviction, religious or irreligious, will of itself end once and for all, all this fifth columnist in the soul, meaning collaboration with the enemy or the opposing view. Only the practice of faith resulting in the habit of faith will gradually do that. Meaning no matter where you land on anything, there will always be these days when you're like, oh, is it true? So it's perfectly normal to be a follower of Jesus and have these days when you're like, is this true? Just as it's perfectly normal to believe the material world is all there is, but then to be caught with stunning beauty in the world and be like, wait, this can't be all there is. See, at every place we're putting our beliefs somewhere and there will always be doubts that come along that try and put cracks in it. No matter where you land, there's no place that's free from doubts because it's what's true other than putting your belief in something and finding it to be true. So let me give you an example of what I mean about doubting your doubts. If the premise that there's no God leads most naturally to conclusions that you know aren't true, then why not change your premise? I found this really, really helpful for me. So look, if there's a premise which says the material world is all there is, but then as you start to experience life, you say, wait a minute, What I'm observing here doesn't meet my premise that this is all there is. It's too existential. It's too wonderful. I went to this concert a few years ago. I think I've talked about it. It was this Icelandic band, uh, and it was one of the most beautiful, spiritual, existential, amazing concerts I've ever been at that made me just worship God. And they were singing in Icelandic, and I literally know no words of anything that they've ever sung. So it wasn't that the poetry was hitting me. It was just stunning music, there was a lot of pot being smoked in the vicinity, so I'm not sure if that had anything to do with the existential experience, but regardless, that was an experience of mine where I felt like, hey, there's more to life than this. There's something so stunning about life. I mean, when loved ones pass away, what, what's, the, what's just the impulse of anybody, even people without faith? He's in a better place. I know he's in a better place. And, and, and others will, will critique that and say, oh, that's sentimentality, until they lose someone close to them and go, wait, there's more. I, in my bones, there, it feels like there's more. Look, if, if, if the premise you have doesn't, doesn't work itself out to the conclusions and observations that you're experiencing, you might want to change the premise. And I maintain that Christianity has a premise that makes the most sense of both the material world and the supernatural. For example, you can believe that the material world is all there is, but A, that's a leap of faith grounded in a new set of beliefs, right? To believe the material world is all there is. You, you cannot prove that. And second, you are going to have a great deal of challenges that will arise out of that new set of beliefs. Moral obligation. Anytime, if you believe the material world is all there is, anytime you say you shouldn't do that or you should do that, that's, it. That's a moral imperative, not just because it's beneficial, but because you actually think it's right or it's wrong. If the material world is all there is, you might want to, you, you, we, we need to consider changing the premise. Like I said, beauty, meaning, the significance of love. The material world doesn't have good answers for this. And so if you get to the point where you're saying, wait... All of these things don't meet my premise. Maybe it's time to change the premise. And so I'll say it again. I maintain that Christianity has a premise that makes the most sense of both the material world and the supernatural. It can't be that there's only matter. It doesn't fit our world and our experience. Now, I'm just fleshing that out to give one example of what I mean when I say doubt your doubts. Because often we'll say, wait a minute, a lot of smart people are saying the material world is all there is. So maybe the material world's all there is. And we stop. And our faith begins to get shipwrecked, but we haven't actually chased down the crack. The doubt. All that to say, question your doubts as much as you doubt God. Let me give you a helpful example from Mark chapter 9. There's a father who has a sick son and he brings him to Jesus, desperate that his son might be healed. And in the exchange he has with Jesus, he says to him, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if I can do anything, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the Father responds, I believe, help my unbelief. I think this is a helpful example. My study Bible says at this point in Mark 9, the Father immediately confesses that he has some faith, but also acknowledges his spiritual weakness and appeals to Jesus to create in him a heart that believes more firmly. What I love about this dad who wants his son healed, and he's not really sure if Jesus can do it, but he's hopeful. He's got a little belief, but he's sure got a lot of unbelief, is that his posture is towards Jesus, desiring it to be so. I want to encourage you um, to doubt your doubts, and, and in the midst of your doubt, have a posture towards Jesus like this dad who says, I'm struggling here, Jesus, but... I, have, I know I have a shred of belief. That's why I'm talking to you right now, right? Just bring that to him and say, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a posture towards him as opposed to a posture away from him and towards your doubts. And I think that that makes a, a dramatic difference. See, like, did he have doubts that Jesus could heal his son? You bet. But did he bring it to Jesus rather than walk away with unbelieving cynicism? Yes, he did. Third, Jesus graciously meets you in your doubts. Let's not miss that. In this text, it's so, so clear. Thomas says, I will never believe, what does he say next? Unless I see Jesus with my own eyes? Unless I talk with Jesus face to face? Unless I can grab him and give him a hug? No, Thomas goes much weirder than that. Thomas says, unless I put my finger into the nail scars and put my hand into his spear-sliced side, I'll never believe. Talk about needing physical evidence, hey? I don't even just want to see Jesus' nail scars. I want to put my finger in them and just wiggle them around a little bit. Be like, yep, checks out. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's deep. Oh, my hand's really, like, what? What? Like, it's so, so extreme. This is where Thomas is at. All these other disciples have believed. I'll never believe unless I do this weird stuff. Unless there's this really f- convincing physical evidence all the way through. And then what happens? It's like That's bold and a little over the top of Thomas, I would say. Talk about doubt. But look at Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Shalom. And then he said to Thomas, look what he said to Thomas. Thomas, the weird, you need a little too much physical evidence, Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What a Savior. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Is Thomas going to an extreme and being unreasonable? I think so. Does Jesus love his disciples that much that he's willing to go, come on, Thomas. Don't just see like I showed everyone else to observe it. Put your hand in there. Go ahead. I love you. I'm here. I rose. I'm for you. Don't keep doubting. Don't live in unbelief, belief. Trust. you know what's interesting is there's no indication in the text that Thomas does it, right? I mean, he's like, I need the physical proof. I need to put my finger in there, my hand in there. And then when Jesus offers it, it doesn't say that he does it. It just says, my Lord and my God. Why? Why doesn't he follow it all the way through? Well, the reason, I would say, is because he's had a genuine encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and that's frankly enough. I have have doubts all the time, but at the same time, I can tell you, I've also had genuine encounters with the risen Savior, and that grounds me. I've told this story before. Some of you are getting very tired of it. My mother-in-law seems to only come to services when I tell this story. I don't know. So she's like, did you tell that bicycle story again? I'm like, yes, I did. All right. So a few years ago, I was just in the darkest place in my life I had ever been, hopefully will ever be, but I don't know. And I was just crying out to God like in the night, through the night, which sounds super spiritual of me, but that's very rare for one. And I was also very desperate. And I was just praying to God, crying out to God, and praying a prayer of, I don't even know if you love me. I don't even know if you care for me. I don't even know if I'm truly yours. Like Just pleading with Jesus. And the next morning, I am walking in my neighborhood, and a middle-aged man on a bicycle is riding by me. And as we pass, he looks over at me and says, Did you know the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and that he really cares? And off he went. I want to say two things about that story. One, I've never cried out to God like that, praying those things in my life before. Do you even really love me, Jesus? I don't know if it's true. Do you care? Am I saved? Am I yours? I don't even know anymore. I've never cried that kind of prayer of desperation like that before, and I've also never had a middle-aged man on a bike tell me that the Lord Jesus Christ loves me and really cares. And yet Jesus, in, in my misery, in my need, in my desperation, decided to send an angel man really happy to tell me the word that I so desperately wanted to hear from Jesus. Like, sometimes we're just ridiculous, Jesus loves us in the midst of that stuff. Jesus is gracious to us, and Jesus wants more than anybody for you to have a genuine encounter with the risen Jesus. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was a Baptist minister his whole adult life. And every January 1st, he used to recite a poem. He had just the memory of an elephant, right? Elephants, that's what... Yeah. He had a memory of an elephant. He would always just recite these poet poems And he would always recite this one by Minnie Louise Haskins. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. I'm really struggling this morning because I my heart's so heavy because we doubt. We struggle. There are hard seasons in our lives, and we say, give me the physical evidence I need, Jesus. Tell me this, show me this. And what we really need is to put slip our hand into the hand of God and let him him guide us into the way that he knows, that he has ordained that he will lead you safely through. Uh, Dostoevsky, famous Russian novelist, said, It is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. I said it earlier. Do you ever feel like, man, faith seems to come so easy to everybody else, not to me, or they seem to grow up in the faith, and I'm just coming to this as an adult, and I don't know what to think, You're not alone. Dostoevsky, one of the greatest novelists of all time, my faith, my Hosanna, my save me, was born of a furnace of doubt. Jesus is incredibly gracious to Thomas. He's been incredibly gracious to me. He was gracious to Thomas by meeting him where he was at. Bring your doubts to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. The Christians with the strongest, most beautiful faiths I've ever seen have been through extremely hard things. And why did their faith stand the test of time? Why did their faith not only stay but grow? I know it to be the truth because they had had genuine encounters with Jesus and they possessed the great Christian hope that could not be taken from them. So let's close with the great Christian hope Jesus said to Thomas, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is a blessing from Jesus to you this morning. Anytime Jesus says, Blessed are you or blessed are those, it's a beatitude. Blessed or the blessings or the beatitudes, it means to be happy. But it's so much better than happy are those who believe without seeing. It means accepted by God, accepted by God. And Jesus is saying this, Jesus is offering this, that we might believe in Jesus, not on our merits that we would be accepted by God, but on the perfect spotless merits of Jesus Christ and everything he's accomplished for us. We trust in him and God sees his record in our place and we are accepted. And Jesus says of those who would walk with Jesus, who would put their trust into Jesus, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed so Jesus is speaking of a time coming, and we're living in it, when all those who will believe will do so without seeing the resurrected Savior. Thomas and the other disciples and many disciples at that time got to see Jesus resurrected with their own eyes. But look, it's not for us a second-rate consolation. Jesus is saying that those who believe upon the testimony of the gospel will be blessed, happy, and accepted by God. I mean, this is written all over the place. I'm just going to start reading a few of them to you. uh, Don't check out here. This is the Word of God in many places about what we're talking about here. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. What is the Word of Christ? It's the Gospel, the true message of Jesus as our crucified and risen Savior. We are able to come to faith because of the witness of these earlier believers, like Thomas, and blessed are those who did not share in Thomas's experience of sight, but because of hearing of Thomas's experience, come to share Thomas' faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.8, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And blessed are those who walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 1 Peter 1, one of the disciples who witnessed Jesus, but now speaking to those who had not seen the resurrected Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus meets Thomas in his doubts to what end? Response. Thomas declares in verse 28 when he sees Jesus, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas is a good Jew. He's a monotheist. He believes that there's one God. And here he is declaring, You are God, my God. Thomas is saying, You are God. And he's also saying, You are my Lord. Lord means master. You do what the master says. Thomas realizes that the risen Christ, who has power over life and death and stands before him, has the right to rule his life. He doesn't simply believe cognitively, yes, I believe Jesus rose. He actually goes further and submits himself to the control of Jesus. This is the Christian life. It's personal for Thomas. My Lord and my God, and we are invited to have the same response. Blessed are those Who have not seen and yet have believed to make the same declaration as Thomas, my Lord and my God, Jesus, you are God, Jesus, you died and you rose for me, and therefore you are my Lord, you are my master, do with my life whatever you see fit. John's point is this the hearer is meant to respond the same way Thomas does. We can't let doubt or apathy or idolatry keep us from complete surrender of our entire lives to Christ. Feeling poetic this morning, so I'm going to share another poem. Edward Shalito wrote shortly after just the horrors of the First World War concluded, wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes Burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by the scars, we claim thy grace. If, when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, Only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We we know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars, we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Why does God have wounds? Because you have wounds. I was watching the vigil, the vigil of the Humboldt Broncos on television earlier in the week. It's powerful. The nation has come together over this tragedy. And as the Humboldt Broncos chaplain and pastor in that community concluded his message... He talked about the scars of Jesus, and then he, began, he summarized this tragedy that had happened to them, and he said, will we heal? Yes. Will there be scars? Yes. But why does God have scars? Because we have scars. He became like you, so you could become like him. Jesus died and rose again so that when you die to yourself, you will never die, but will have eternal life. The great Christian hope. If you are a follower of Jesus, that means your best days are always in front of you and never behind you. Think about that. Are you going through hard things? Do you have doubts? Are you suffering? Here's the great Christian hope because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We know it to be true. If you are a follower of Jesus, that means your best days are always in front of you, never behind you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so, so good to us. You meet us in our doubts. You meet us in our sin. You meet us where we are graciously. God, thank you that Thomas's account is in the scripture. It's so honest. It's so real. We relate to it. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting him in that. For showing us who you are. And, and we're told in scripture, you never change. That's you. That's how you are with us. Oh, Lord, may we have the posture in the midst of suffering, in the midst of doubt, of of at least turning our face to you and saying, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. But I have faith. Help my unbelief. And would you meet us there and help us overcome those doubts. Settle into faith. Settle into hope. Settle into joy that we know will be everlasting. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. In the midst of distressing times, see us through Jesus. In your precious name, amen.